Uh, Let's ask God now to help us understand his word. Please pray with me as I pray for us. Our gracious God, we thank you that your word is living and active, that it is unbound, uh, that through your word you can still speak into our hearts for our encouragement, making Jesus known to us and equipping us to live as Jesus' people. We pray that we would know that work of your word in our hearts through your spirit tonight, that you would help me to teach your word truthfully and clearly, and we would receive this word as your word, uh, the word of our God to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here we go. It's uh, good. Good, we're underway. So writes Paul to Timothy, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, that is the apostolic witness to Jesus in the gospel, or of me, his prisoner. If Timothy or you and I are going to persevere in being identified as believers in the Jesus of the Gospels, if we are going to share that gospel freely and joyfully, we must be unashamed. For shame is uncomfortable and shame is powerful. Shame is experiencing the disapproval of the group you belong to because you've transgressed its values and been exposed publicly as having done that in a context where because you belong to that group, you've actually internalised those values. So there's a public and private dimension to shame. The disapproval of others hurts because, in a sense, you agree with it. You feel your acts were shameful. Being ashamed is uncomfortable and powerful. And if shame is uncomfortable and powerful for us, that there are things we just wouldn't do because we feared exposure, like, public drunkenness or cheating. Shame was even more powerful for Timothy. First century Greco-Roman culture was one where children were trained from childhood to seek honour and avoid disgrace and where the honour and disgrace an an individual earned reflected not just on themselves but on their whole family and community. It, It was a culture where bringing shame to a family or society brought real consequences. Rejection, exclusion, beatings, a culture where shame was actively used as a way of exerting social control. People were very sensitive then to shame, and people still are. You don't last long in your commitment to something if you are ashamed of it. At least you won't last long in your public commitment to it. Someone might practise a shameful vice in private, as we know, like watching child porn on their computers for years, always fearing discovery. But that won't work for the Christian faith. The gospel is a public message and trusting obedience to Jesus involves the whole of our life, cannot be kept secret. To be ashamed of the gospel is the first step on the road to abandoning it and shame is the inhibitor of all faithful ministry, shames the water that will always quench the fire of our zeal, the scourge that will always drive us from the public square. Don't be ashamed, says Paul to Timothy. 
Yet there was so much in the gospel that a first sight might make a first century person ashamed of the gospel. You see, at the heart of the gospel message is Jesus' crucifixion. Yet crucifixion was a form of execution designed for slaves and common criminals, a lingering death designed to be not only painful but shameful, humiliating its victims. To claim your leader was crucified was to be associated with what was shameful from the very beginning. Oh, in addition, the gospel's call to abandon the worship of your families or city's gods on whom the welfare of the whole community was thought to depend, to instead worship Jesus, well, that call was seen as shameful, a failure to seek the collective good. The notion that the Christian community was one where slaves mingled as equals with peoples of other classes, well, that was seen by the honourable as shameful. Even Paul, the gospel's messenger, being in chains was seen as shameful, for it portrayed him as a criminal and a threat to the stability of society, and having to endure public mockery for such weird beliefs was shameful. Don't be ashamed, says Paul, but there was so much in the gospel that would prompt shame. Then and now. Oh, the cross has been sanitised, but it still makes no sense to many. Then there's the Christian sexual ethic that's seen as oppressive, denying people the path to flourishing by being true to themselves. Oh, the claim that there's only one way to God in a society that promotes inclusiveness as something that's seen as shameful, the teaching on judgment that many see as an attempt to control the behaviour of others the lack of sophistication in believing in miracles, the destruction of other cultures, all, all our culture identifies as shameful. There's much our culture sees as shameful in the testimony about our Lord and in the life of his messengers. But Paul tells Timothy and us that we should not be ashamed of the apostles' witness to Jesus in the Gospels and instead be willing to suffer with Paul for that gospel. Why? Why not be ashamed? Well, it's because the salvation the gospel of Jesus proclaims and brings is the work of the true and living God. He, God, has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was given us in Christ Jesus before time began. The gospel's not one competing human philosophy amongst many. It's about something the living God has done. He saved us. Now, salvation is a big idea. Salvation is a word that's a little like a freight train drawing behind it many carriages full of Old Testament promises and expectations. Salvation's more than forgiveness. Paul talks about salvation here as Past and complete, he saved us because he's confident in God fulfilling his purpose. Elsewhere he can talk of believers as being saved or those who will be saved. To be saved is to be at peace with God and to share in that time when his people will live in peace in his presence, in the new heaven and earth he has promised. There they will be secure. There'll be no threat from nature, for in Isaiah's words, the wolf and the lamb will feed together and the lion will eat straw like cattle. They won't do what is evil or destroy on my in all my holy mountain. 
no threat from nature, no threat from enemies because they will all be subjected to God's rule. No threat even then from our own sin because we'll have new hearts that delight in doing God's will. To be saved is to be one of God's people. And that's what God calls us to in the gospel. He has called us with a holy calling. That is, he's called us to live holy lives, to be his people who will be in both the Old and New Testament holy just as he is holy. Through Christ and the gospel, God is doing what he has promised to do, to have for himself a holy people who will live in his presence at peace with him forever, his saved people. Don't be ashamed. For this is the work of the living God. And it is a gracious work. He saved us not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. People who are called through the gospel come to share in this wonderful salvation as a gift. It's not earned. It comes from God's determination, uh, his mercy and his determination to fulfil his gracious plan. And so there's hope here in the gospel for those who have no hope, whose works could never earn them peace with God, and that's all of us. For what our works earn is judgment because they're all tainted with our rebellion against God our maker. But in the gospel of Jesus, all can be included. Whatever our religious background, our intelligence, our wealth, it doesn't depend on the time and chance of human opportunity and achievement but on God's grace. Don't be ashamed. The gospel speaks of God's generosity, of a God who is rich in mercy, And it speaks of a sure work, a work that will never fail or disappoint, for it is the outworking of God's eternal purpose in Christ. He saved us according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. The grace believers receive was given to us in Christ before the beginning of time itself, the times of the ages. Now, I think our leaders are doing the best they can do in this pandemic. But the changes in advice, in timelines, in plans, necessary as they are, doesn't give you the impression that they know exactly where they're going and that they're in control. And that affects, doesn't it, our confidence in their plans and words. But God's purpose is settled, his plan certain, from before time. He doesn't have to adapt and change, accommodate to the unforeseen. His saving us is the outworking in the present of a gracious purpose he has settled on in eternity and we can be confident he knows what he is doing and so we know he will most certainly bring to pass what he intends. And we and all the world come to know this purpose and grace through Jesus For this eternal salvation is accomplished through the appearing in time of the Lord Jesus. His eternal purpose and grace have now been made evident, plain, through the appearing of our Saviour Christ Jesus who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That's what the gospel claims, that Jesus brings the long-planned, long-promised salvation of God. 
He doesn't just announce it by his coming, he achieves it. He has abolished death. And what a lot of good news is contained in that phrase. Death, the judgment on our sin. Death, the covering that's cast over all peoples, whose long shadow falls across every society as we know only too well as they report the daily COVID death numbers. Death, fear of which has held us in bondage all our lives. Death, the end of joy, of light and life and love. Death. Jesus has abolished death by his own death and resurrection, the death and resurrection the gospel proclaims. In his death for our sin, he's dealt with our judgment. He's removed death's sting. He's freed us from fear of death and the devil who has the power of death. He's made now the death of our bodies a falling asleep from which we will awake refreshed in his presence. And in his resurrection, he has guaranteed our own resurrection to life on the day of judgment. And he's revealed this to us and to all in the gospel, the testimony about our Lord, the message he has sent into all the world through the apostles he's chosen. Having abolished death, Jesus has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. In believing the gospel, we can come to share in the life and immortality Jesus has achieved. Now, some find this talk of eternal life troublesome because for them, it and it does, it relativizes human achievements and judgments. It limits the impact of human power. It means that this world, its pleasures and its griefs are not ultimate and that troubles them. But the life Jesus brings is good. Immortality is not primarily speaking of duration, but the quality of life. It's the life of salvation, the life that does not know the decay and corruption of death that we know in our bodies in this life. It's a life not marred with lies and lack of trust, a life marked with beauty. The vision of heaven is one of light, intense light, refracted light and life. It's a life where there's never grief, Never a sundered relationship, never the loss of love, never the painful confusion of misunderstandings, a life without regret and tears, life where we know God. This life is brought to light through the gospel. It's not kept a secret. It's there, displayed in the gospel in Jesus' ministry, in his fulfilment of scripture, in his resurrection to be seen and embraced by all For God wants this long-planned, gracious salvation accomplished in time through his Son known. He is determined this gospel be heard. Paul's appointment and that of the other apostles makes that clear. For this gospel, I was appointed a herald, apostle and teacher. Now, a herald was in the ancient world without newspapers, radios, TVs, someone who made public announcements. A herald gave news, whether of the arrival of kings or their orders, of the beginning of public games, the freeing of slaves, all sorts of news. And to be a herald, there were two requirements, a loud voice and the ability to repeat exactly what they'd been told, to convey the information, the news accurately. Paul, as he's been appointed by God, to convey the good news, the gospel 
accurately to all. And he could do this with authority as an apostle, someone who'd seen the risen Jesus. And as a teacher, he could make known the meaning of what he proclaimed, make known how to respond, make known the life Jesus called for from his followers. Why should Timothy not be ashamed of the gospel witness to Jesus and of Paul its preacher? Why should we not be? Because Christ proclaimed in the gospel is God's saviour, bringing the promised salvation of God, the outworking of his eternal gracious purpose through that shameful cross. And the gospel is God's message that makes that salvation known to all. And the gospel is so good. It's the word from the living God and so a sure, certain and reliable word. It's the word that comes from grace and brings grace. It comes from God's love and mercy and brings us to know love and mercy It's the word that brings us life in our death and a word for all, not a secret that God wants us to keep to ourselves. And it's to make known this good gospel that Paul suffers as he fulfills his calling. For this gospel, that's why he says, I suffer these things. And he reminds Timothy, who might be tempted to see Paul's chains as a cause of shame, that he, Paul, is not ashamed of what's happened to him. For the gospel he preaches has brought him to know and trust the God who commissioned him to preach the gospel. I'm not ashamed because I know whom I've believed and I'm persuaded that he's able to guard my deposit until that day. I know whom I have believed or trusted. The gospel brings us to know God, not some vague idea of God, not a philosophical construct whom one day we might be convinced of and the next day doubt, but the living God who acts and speaks and who has revealed himself in his Son, the only God, the God we know knows us, the God who makes promises to us, the God who is powerful to raise the dead, the God who in accomplishing his salvation through his son has shown himself to be faithful, the one he keeps his word, the promises he gave to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, to Israel through the prophets. It's brought us to know the God who loves us and brings us into relationship with himself, who gives us his spirit in our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. I know, says Paul, whom I have trusted, And I'm convinced, persuaded, that he is able to guard what's been entrusted to me until that day. Now, what's been entrusted is a phrase used to translate one word of the Greek text. And that's a word meaning deposit. Uh, That that was a word in everyday use for something which could, could be money or people or things, something that you'd leave in the care of a friend or in the care of the temple for safekeeping when you were, for example, going on a journey. And the one thing that mattered was that the person you left your deposit with would be faithful, that they would, that what you'd left with them would be kept unharmed and returned to you when you came for them. Now, Paul says that he's persuaded that God is able to guard 
my, that is Paul's, deposit until that day, the day of judgment when Christ returns. Now, my deposit could be, as the CSB translates, what God has entrusted to Paul, meaning the gospel. And many modern versions adopt this sense. As in verse 14, the same word is used to the gospel entrusted to Timothy. Guard, Timothy is told, the good deposit. But my deposit is more likely to be what Paul has entrusted to God. His life and ministry, in this case, including the gospel he's been preaching. Paul is saying he's not ashamed, despite his imprisonments and hardship, despite the fact that he will soon lose his life for the gospel, because he knows he won't be a loser. His life won't be a waste, because he has entrusted his life to the God he knows and has trusted through believing the gospel of the Lord Jesus, and he knows he is trustworthy. God will vindicate Paul's life and ministry at the last day when the Lord vindicates his own gospel and reveals Jesus the Saviour in glory. Then the human judgment on Paul's life, a judgment that has tried to cover him with shame as a convicted criminal, will be reversed. He'll be covered in glory, the messenger, the herald of the eternal king. Then the human judgment on Paul's message, the gospel, the judgment that mocked the message of the cross as weak and foolish, will be shown as empty and the gospel shown to be true. Isn't it a wonderful thing to be able to say at the end of a life that only makes sense if the gospel is true? I know whom I've believed and I am persuaded, convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him my whole life until that day. Paul says to Timothy and to us, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Be willing to suffer for it it reveals the salvation of God through his son, our saviour, life and immortality for all who believe and more. It will bring you to know the one whom you can trust with your whole life, the one who is faithful to every promise, the one who is the judge, the one who is mighty to raise the dead. It will bring you to know him as your faithful saviour. So what are we to do if we heed Paul's call? If we, like him, are convinced that we should not be ashamed of the gospel. In verses 13 to 18, Paul gives Timothy a picture of the ministry and the life of the unashamed. Hold on to the pattern of sound teaching that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit through the Holy Spirit who lives in us. First, he tells Timothy, what the ministry of the unashamed looks like. It will be one characterised by passing on faithfully the message of the gospel that he's received from Paul unchanged. Hold on to the pattern of sound teaching that you've heard from me. Timothy must teach after Paul's model and pattern and not depart from it. And pattern has to do with both content, in a sense, and shape, proportion. The content of Timothy's teaching is to be what he's heard from Paul. That content is to be faithfully proclaimed, taught and passed on. And Timothy's teaching is to have not just the same content but the same emphases, the same 
proportions, not become, for example, preoccupied like the false teachers with myths and genealogies. It's to retain that focus on the cross and salvation. And that teaching following Paul's pattern will be sound, health-bringing, life-restoring. But there can't just be faithfulness to the message. Orthodoxy alone is not sufficient. It has to be accompanied by the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. There must be faithfulness to the Lord, Paul's gospel proclaims, seen in a genuine relationship with him, believing the promises of the gospel himself and trusting the Lord who makes them, obeying that Lord, living the life of love our Lord commands, the love that, like our Lord's and Paul's, will pay a cost for people to hear and believe the life-giving gospel. And those who are unashamed of the message of Jesus and Paul, his appointed messenger, will also guard the good deposit that's been entrusted to them. That is, they'll protect the gospel they've received from the Uh, They'll protect the gospel they've received from the apostles from harm, alteration and corruption so that they can pass it on intact to the next generation of believers just as Paul passed it on to Timothy. Those who guard the good deposit won't let it be altered by addition or subtraction by adding the words of men to the word of God or by the denial or cutting out of any of its content. Now, why this emphasis on faithfulness to the message received? Because that commitment to faithfulness has been a source of a great divide both through church history and today. It's a division between those who think that what's been entrusted to us can be changed and adapted because they actually see stewardship as ownership. It's theirs to change as they like. And those who know that they've been given a deposit and it must be preserved and passed on unchanged. You see that divide in church history, say, between the Roman Catholic Church, which thinks it can add the teachings of the church to the gospel, and, say, the Protestant Church. You see it in the Protestant rejection of added doctrines like the sacrifice of the mass or transubstantiation or papal infallibility, additions that changed the gospel from one of justification by faith alone to one that includes human works as part of our justification. You see this division in history and you see this division today. There are those who think that uh, teaching that's not in harmony with modern concerns should be changed and so, for example, we should accept the practice of same-sex relationships the inclusion of women in the eldership, that all religions are ways to God, many other things. And then there are those who think we have to be faithful to what we've received in every respect, the pattern of sound words taught by the apostles, believing and doing all it teaches. And why is that faithfulness, that insistence, on holding fast to what the apostles have taught without alteration, subtraction or addition, right. Why is it right? Because let's face it, times change and surely we have to be able to adapt the message to changing understandings of the world and of people. Well, we pass it on unchanged because like Paul, we're convinced that the gospel entrusted to him is not a man-made word. It's the word of God a message given to Paul, the means God uses to bring life and immortality. 
It's because salvation in Jesus is the work of God, the God who is living and active and who speaks. And that's the choice, to think that the gospel is made up by people, their reflection on their experience, their best effort to describe their experience so we could have a similar experience, a human would. One expression amongst many of human spirituality, of human questing for meaning, for connection with the ultimate. You can think it's a human word or you can receive it as Paul declares it to be. The word of the living God revealing the salvation that God himself has achieved in his son and calling people to repentance and faith in God through believing the son of God, the Lord Jesus. You can receive it as it is, God's gospel, not a man-made message coming from God, a unique word God has entrusted to the apostles which has to be protected, preserved and passed on to every generation of believers so that it can do God's work in every generation, so that it can bring to them the salvation of God, life and immortality through believing God's gospel. Only God's gospel can bring us the life of God. No human work can do that. Only God's gospel can bring us to know the God who will never shame us. No human work can do that. If we're unashamed of the gospel, we'll preserve the pattern of sound teaching we receive from the apostle and guard what has been entrusted to us. But that will mean pressure and suffering. And so when Paul calls on Timothy to not be ashamed of the gospel, he points him and us to the resource God supplies to allow us to do that, the spirit that he gives us. Don't be ashamed of the testimony. Share in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God. Guard the good deposit through the Holy Spirit who lives in us. We are to rely on God. For the Spirit is God continuing his work of salvation through his gospel by working in the lives of his people to preserve his gospel and make it known. It's the Spirit who gives understanding. It's the Spirit who reveals Jesus in his word. It's the Spirit who nurtures in us faith and love in Christ. And it's the Spirit who works in Timothy and us that power, love and self-control we will need to be persevering in the work of the gospel. In this work we can rely on God for it's God's message and he wants it heard by all, by all nations. To be unashamed we should be drawing near to God for the help he will readily give us through his spirit and we should be giving ourselves to the work of his spirit in us. But those unashamed of the gospel not only transmit it faithfully themselves, they support others engaged in that work. Sadly, when believers are confronted with shame and embarrassment, well, they tend to fall into two camps. Many craving social respectability or perhaps fearful of the cost of associating with those suspected of being enemies of the powerful fall away. That's what happened to Paul, verse 15. All those in the province of Asia have deserted me, including Phagellus and Hermogenes. Now, it's not likely that all those in the province of Asia, that's modern-day Turkey, abandoned the faith. Well, they kept the name Christian, 
but they did abandon Paul. They didn't want to know him once he'd been arrested. But there was one who did, Onesiphorus. Oh, may the Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he diligently searched for me and found me. May the Lord grant that he obtained mercy from him on that day. You know very well how much he ministered at Ephesus. Amnesiphorus wasn't ashamed of the chain Paul, Paul who'd been branded a criminal, a danger to the stability of society. He sought Paul out and refreshed him in time of need. He gave him emotional support just by his presence. Oh, and he brought material support. For prisoners had to provide for themselves, depended on their friends and family for food and clothing. Think about Onesiphorus. He took the initiative to care. He sought until he found Paul. He wasn't passive. And he was not put off by social disapproval. He treated Paul as he was, not a cause of shame, but a messenger of God's life-giving gospel. He was practical in his support. He was persistent. He often refreshed me. And it flowed from a pattern of life already established. He was in the habit, even in Ephesus, of supporting the work of the gospel. As Omnesiphorus showed Paul mercy, so Paul, recalling our Lord's blessing, blessed to the merciful, for they will receive mercy, wishes mercy to Onesiphorus and his family, who also paid the cost of his support for the gospel. And Onesiphorus will receive mercy. Onesiphorus, unashamed of the gospel and Paul, its preacher, is one of those who will be surprised at the last day by hearing our Lord, the gracious Son of Man, say, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. And remember how Jesus continues in Matthew 25. The righteous will answer him. Lord, when we do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Transformed by the gospel, Omnesiphorus loved the gospel preacher. And in loving the gospel preacher, he loved his Lord. He was an unashamed believer. Will you be an unashamed believer? So confident that the gospel is God's word that brings life because it reveals God's salvation through his son that you will suffer to be faithful to the gospel, suffer to make it known. Be willing in our society, say, to be politely ignored or mocked or excluded or be thought ignorant to be slandered for the gospel, perhaps even excluded from jobs for the gospel? Will you be willing to give up a comfortable life to make it known, to pass it on faithfully? Oh, unashamed of the gospel, will you labour to preserve and pass it on unchanged? You know, that's the responsibility of every believer. 
Each of us should be diligent to avoid and resist error, to work at understanding the truth, both its content and shape, and where we have opportunity to teach it faithfully, and we do have opportunities, whether that's in our own homes, (coughs) with our children, in youth group, in Sunday school, growth group, we have lots of opportunities. And faithful to the gospel We have to be determined not to be like the congregations Paul warns us of. In chapter 4, the time will come, he says, when people will not tolerate sound doctrine but according to their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. They'll turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. Congregations can get tired of hearing the truth, sound, health-giving teaching. Don't think it can't happen to us. Congregations can reject content or style that doesn't suit them, and that's a real danger in our consumer culture where the consumer is king. And so we tend to think everything should be done to please us. And so if we don't like what we hear, well, we move on or we change the provider. We go somewhere or get someone with whom we feel more comfortable where there's less talk of what the gospel majors on like sin and judgment and salvation through the sacrificial death of Jesus and the call then to sacrificial love and service where there's less of that and more say of the practical helps we want to live a successful life or have the perfect family or support our political views. Being unashamed of the gospel, the pattern of sound teaching we have from the apostles takes determination, both individually and collectively, being committed to preserving and passing on the gospel. And one of the things that means for a congregation, for example, is only choosing people as elders and ministers who understand and are faithful to the truth and who can and will teach it and oppose error, but not only choosing them then receiving their ministry gladly. Will you preserve and pass on the truth? And being unashamed of the gospel, will you also be willing to support and encourage faithful ministry like on Nesiphorus? Never underestimate the encouragement that you could give by a kind word or from taking initiative, offering help before it's asked for of committing yourself to persevering prayer. Oh, yes, and recognise, like on Nesiphorus, that support and encouragement also includes providing material support for gospel messengers. We have many opportunities to be unashamed supporters of gospel ministry here, whether it's supporting those labouring on our uni campuses with AFES, supporting our missionaries, supporting our ministers here or or those training to serve in preaching and teaching the gospel like student ministers or AFES trainees or others learning to serve in the gospel with other groups. Suffering for the gospel, preserving and passing on the gospel, supporting and encouraging gospel ministry, that is the life of those unashamed of the gospel and its ministers. Is that your life? Are you committed to that life? Because you know the gospel to be the word of God revealing the work of God that brings life and immortality that has brought life to you. Is that your life? Because you know through believing the gospel 
the living God as your God, the one you have trusted and you are convinced that he will keep what you have entrusted to him, your life, all of it, your reputation and your eternity. So don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Instead, share in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we pray that these, that this would not just be words to us, uh, but in your mercy, we pray that you would convict us of where we are tempted to be ashamed of the gospel and bring us to repentance. Bring us to repentance through letting us know the life and immortality that you give through the gospel. Bring us to repentance by letting us know you, the true and living God who has revealed yourself through your Son in the gospel. Bring us to repentance because in the gospel you have brought us to know your grace and your sure and certain purpose to have a people for your own and that you have included us in that people by your grace through the death and rising of your Son. Our gracious God, make us unashamed believers, people who are willing to suffer for the truth that can bring life and immortality to all who hear the gospel and to turn to your Son in repentance and faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.